Welcome to all of you uh, listening to the podcast of the Christian Studies Center of Gainesville. I'm uh, delighted today to be hosting Matthew Lee Anderson, who is the Assistant uh, Research Professor of Ethics and Theology at Baylor University's Institute for the Studies for Studies of Religion, and also the Associate Director of Baylor in Washington. Um, I've known uh, Matt at least virtually for for a while, and um, for, was first introduced to his work. Uh, when I became aware of Earthen Vessels, which was Matt's first book, um, subtitled Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith. Uh, his second book was The End of Our Exploring, about the place of questions uh, in our spiritual and moral lives. Uh, Matthew is also the founder of Mere Orthodoxy, uh, a wonderful website uh, that deals with all matters of, um, uh, of, of to- all manner of topics, including religion, politics, and culture. Uh, from a uh, broadly conservative and evangelical standpoint. And Matt is also the author currently of a uh, ongoing newsletter, uh, The Path Before Us. And I would uh, highly recommend that you subscribe. And I will include links to all of this on the the newsletter when it goes out. So Matt, thank you. Welcome. And uh, glad to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Uh, good. I'm glad. I'm, I uh, appreciate that. Um, this just gives me the opportunity to talk to people I find interesting and compelling. And uh, so I just get to enjoy a conversation. Um, yeah. I can't believe you had me on given that criteria. <laughs> I just kind of think you, that you're off on the wrong foot here. You immediately came to mind. And, uh, and as I <laughs> joked, I think I will, I will pick off the uh, Mir O Slack group one by one. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, so um, I, and, and maybe we can start with Mir Orthodoxy. Um, so part of um, the, the reason that we want to do these sorts of interviews is to uh, draw awareness to the work of, uh, of young Christian scholars, um, what they're doing, where they're writing. Um, and so Mere Orthodoxy, it's been around for a while. You founded this in 2005. Is that correct? Yeah, that is right. <laughs> and, and so um, 2004, actually. Sorry. 2004. Okay. Yeah, it was 2004. Right. So... Um, so, so give us the, the founding story. What, what, um, what led you to, to start the website? Pure narcissism. Why does anything, <laughs> anyone do anything on the internet? Yeah. Um, no, I, I, uh, it's, it's not much of a story. I mean, I had a, a prof, John Mark Reynolds, who is a bit of a crazy person, um, brilliant and crazy and very energetic, has a million ideas mm-hmm. all the time. And he, you know, I was a senior and he was like, you should, you got, you guys should start a website. They're called blogs. Uh, and you can like write and lots of people will come and read it. And I thought, okay, I've just been told that I should do this thing. So I guess I should go do this thing. So I just grabbed a group of friends and we started writing at this little weblog. Yeah. As I think yeah. they were called at the time. Right. Right. Uh, and one, I would say one thing led to another and here we are, but uh, really no one should go read anything prior to like 2010. <laughs> that, I, I think that may be when I, when I first wrote a couple of articles there. So yeah, that was yeah a good good. Year. <laughs> that's a great year yeah, to yeah. start reading mere orthodoxy. Yeah. Anything before yeah. that, probably just stay away. Yeah. But the, the title mere orthodoxy, um, say a word about that because I think that, that, um, is pretty significant and, and draws on two important Christian thinkers. Yeah. I mean, when you're starting, so when I was starting this out, I really, I really wanted to write for non-Christians. Uh, my central aim was to articulate why, uh, 
Christianity was still a palatable thing to believe, mm-hmm. um, why it was still good and true and beautiful. Um, my brother had actually left the faith uh, around uh, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. And I spent a lot of my time as an undergrad arguing with him. You know, mm-hmm. Ch- Chesterton has this quip about his brother where he says something like, you know, the, the man who learned to argue with Cecil Chesterton need never fear an argument <laughs> with anyone else. Um, and that's certainly how I feel about my brother, um, yeah. who's the smart one in the family. And so yeah. really it was just an attempt to keep up with yeah. him. And um, so, you know, you look around for models for people who do that sort of work well. And it was always Chesterton for me. Like from, from the, the, the time that I picked up orthodoxy, mm-hmm. heretics and orthodoxy in 2002, yeah. like he was just my guy. I ran around between 2002 and 2004 quoting Chesterton <laughs> to all my friends and just being super annoying and talking about how he was so much better than Lewis. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like you just take their best works and staple the titles together and all of a sudden yeah. you, you get this thing. So, it, it, you know, it just occurs to me that I did exactly the same thing. So I, my newsletter, the Convivial Society, is basically just Jacques Ellul and, and Ivan Illich stitched together, right? So, yeah, I, I Which maybe is a I great, sort of subconsciously. It's a great yeah. thing to do, right? Yeah. Shakespeare steals his plots. We can steal people's plots. <laughs> I mean, there's no no shame in that. I, well, I feel totally absolved now. <laughs> um, right now, um, Jake Meador is the, uh, and I confess, I am I saying his last name correctly? I've, I I've, think so. Okay. I, I've, you know, I've known Jake forever, and I still don't know how you say his last <laughs> name. So that sounds great to me. Good. All right. Um, you handed off uh, what 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 two three years ago now. Uh, I think it's longer than that. Longer than that. Okay. Yeah, I think it's five or six years ago. Um, I mean, mere orthodoxy was not a thing when I was running it. Jake has turned it into a thing. Um, I knew. So, I mean, partly what happened was I never wanted it to be a personal like website. I really wanted to avoid that. Um, and yet, like all the friends around me didn't write consistently. And I found myself with other people who submitted work having to spend a lot of my time editing. And I just, I can edit. I think I'm a decent editor. I have strong opinions about what people should say and how they should say yeah. it. Uh, and I'm happy conveying those yeah. opinions uh, to improve their work, but it was not what I love to do. And so I, I found that I was a bottleneck for growing the site. Actually, I was, you know, I was willing to write, yeah. but in terms of anyone else, so it was either going to be just me mm-hmm. or, uh, I need to get out of there for the whole thing to increase. And so I, yeah. like, I thought I just, I got to leave this um, so that some other people can take it on and, and yeah. do something with it. And Jake has done just an extraordinary job. He's made yeah. it into a place that has a very eclectic group of uh, writers who are all generally in this, like with the same kind of convictions that it had yeah. from, from the outset. Um, so I hope it's not going through a refounding. I hope it still has some of that original DNA. It's yeah. just that the the kinds of, you know, the kinds of issues that uh, we take up now, that the site takes up now, are still ordered towards, you know, keeping people in the faith mm-hmm. and or making Christian convictions seem reasonable and attractive mm-hmm. and, and beautiful yeah. to people. Yeah. It's just the kinds of issues that people care about have shifted. Yeah. Right. It's not hardcore sort of apologetics or doctrinal right. issues. It's moral issues. It's political right. issues. And so, you know, uh, that's, that I think is 
what's been consistent about the site. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that because it occurs to me that uh, around the time that you founded it, um, this was sort of uh, peak new atheist uh, era. Yeah. And w- were those some of the issues, the, the type of arguments or debates you were having at that time? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, my brother and I would go back and forth. We would have okay. wars in the yeah. comments. You know, um, PZ Myers, Farin, uh, I could never say that name right, Ferengulia. Like he was a big deal at yeah. the time. Um, and, you know, there were lots of debates about science and intelligent design and uh, historicity of scripture, right. uh, in, you know, inerrancy, how we interpret hermeneutics, yeah. those sorts of things. Right. Um, really kind of dominated. And, you know, it was a blog, so everything's much yeah. shorter. And I, I, I effectively learned to write that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, mean, I had a similar experience. Uh, and I mean, sometimes I feel that it almost constrains me now a little bit because I, I have a sort of internal sense for that's about as long as that should be for a blog post kind of yeah. thing. Although, um, then again, I, got, I do run long-winded. Yeah, I got over that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. partially I got over it because I, I realized that as more and more websites were like, turning to that, as con- quote content ugh, right. was getting yeah. shorter and shorter that there was actually a, a weird niche mm-hmm. in writing really long pieces yeah. right. and it became a kind of like calling card for me. Yeah. Oh, Anderson's yeah. going to publish 2000 <laughs> words. Yeah. Uh, that's just what he does. Right. Um, and that was, that was a real shift in how the site sort of, developed um and that was a shift that happened under me it it ceased to be sort of short 800 word posts and became you know look we might only publish once a week here it might even be once every 10 days yeah but we're gonna churn out 2,000 words at a time right something substantive that will leave you thinking yeah yeah which was always the aim right right so your first book um came not too long after that. And am I correct in remembering that it, it, um, it was a, an article originally, right? That was published in City Journal, is that? No, no, this is okay. not, you are not right in remembering this. This is, this is close. So I did publish it. So it was the outflow of an article that I published in the City Journal. Okay. Uh, in the sense that I wrote an article for the City Journal, which was a, a journal that Houston Baptist published and is now sadly defunct. Um, called the New Evangelical Scandal. Okay. And it was in uh, 2009, I think. No, it would have been December of 2008 <laughs> that I wrote that article. And um, it was eff- effectively evaluating the kind of Obama evangelicals, the, the mm-hmm. young evangelicals, mm-hmm. and how they were the same or different than yeah. sort of standard evangelicals, religious sure. right things. Um, I still think it's probably one of the best things that I've ever written. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was the sort of thing that I, I was in the middle of a vocational crisis at the time. I was actually working as a financial planner and I was asked to write an essay and I'd never written an essay before mm. of, of that length. Right. And I remember writing it and thinking, uh, this is going to go one of two ways. Like my, my life like, is really going to go one of two ways at this juncture. Either I'm going to write this thing and it's going to be great and people are going to care and I'm going to like 
take up, follow this vocation of saying things, Hmm. or it's not going to be great and it's no one's going to care. And I'm just going to actually quit Mm -hmm. this. Uh, And I remember, and I, and I wrote this, this essay uh, effectively, I mean, I outlined it and pulled together everything, but I actually wrote it on a Saturday and a Sunday because those were the only days that I had. And I, mm. I spent something like 15 hours on a Saturday. Yeah. And when I had the draft, I just, I just knew. It's like one of the only times when I've written something when I, when I got to the end and was like, this is, this is just really good work. Like this, yeah. is, this yeah. is landing in the way in which I needed it to land. Right. Uh, and that essay generated more attention for me than anything that I had ever done to that point mm. on the internet. Yeah. Um, and out of that, I ended up getting contacted by a publisher uh, who wanted me to write about young evangelicals. And if I had managed my career wisely, I would have written about young evangelicals. It turns out that when you write an article that everyone loves, you're supposed to write a book yeah, on right. it. Um, yeah. And But I didn't because I'm an idiot, one. Uh, <laughs> and two, I was kind of like, well, it's a good article. I really love that article. I also think it's right now just an article. Like I don't yeah, want to right. be a young evangelicals guy. Here's this issue that I think is, is in certain respects more important mm-hmm. uh, that this is a terrible thing to say, but few people are writing about, mm-hmm. namely the body. Yeah. This is what I would like to do. Right. Uh, so I sold them on a book on the body and it was just a terrible idea. Uh-huh. I was drawn to your work because at the time I had become really interested in, in the body in relationship to how we think about technology. Yeah. And so I thought this was wonderful. This is brilliant. And, and I was, I was glad to see the work being done. Um, <laughs> and, but it is, I mean, it says something, I suppose, to the distinction between, um, you know, work that will be popular and work that is needed. And they're not always the same kind of work. Um, because I, I, I mean, I certainly agree with your assessment that this is a, a topic that's sort of fundamental um, to our, to our faith and to how we live it and how we think about it. And a, and a kind of gap in our thinking, um, especially for in, in evangelical circles. Yeah. Um, and so what were some of the, the, the sort of key ideas in that book that you wanted to, to, to drive home or to leave your readers with? Yeah. I mean, the man, that gap between what needs to be said and what people want to hear is yeah. hard. And my lament about that book, like it's, I actually think I can make a reasonable claim that it was just a little too early. Mm-hmm. Like I talk some about issues related to trans mm-hmm. probably five years before uh, Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover, mm-hmm. you know, five, mm-hmm. seven longer, 10 years yeah. before. Um, so, you know, what I really wanted to do was to be able um, to articulate mostly a Pauline theology of the yeah. body. Um, it's, it's very Paul focused. Uh, I wanted to be able to say uh, something like, look, evangelicals have not written explicitly about the body. If you were going to look at kind of the evangelical canon on embodiment, you wouldn't find much. Yeah. Um, that doesn't entail that evangelicals haven't cared about the body mm-hmm. uh, or that they're sort of quasi Gnostics or whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, which were popular lines at the time and mm-hmm. still somewhat are. Uh, it just means that they haven't directly reflected about yeah. it. And so I wanted to excavate 
uh, for evangelicals in an evangelical way, uh, the significance of corporeality of, mm-hmm. of our flesh uh, across a variety of contexts that were of interest to evangelical readers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I did a fair amount of theoretical work, um, which was pretty influenced by uh, Oliver O'Donovan. Um, uh, so I did, a, I did a fair amount of theoretical work around how to think about bodiliness. And then I, you know, pivoted and did some practical chapters uh, on, for instance, uh, death and how to think about cremation, um, the body in corporate worship, you know, like I was talking about online uh, services before yeah. COVID was cool, yeah, made right. them cool, uh, made them acceptable forever. Right. And yeah. my favorite chapter, and I think everyone's favorite chapter is the chapter on tattoos. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's, it's that, that emerged for me in my research. Uh, I, I just started reading a bunch about tattoos and, and went down this wormhole and became super fascinated by them. Uh, and so I, I like to joke that I know more about tattoos than any other living theologian <laughs> and certainly any other living theologian that doesn't have one. You know that, that well, that, that may be the case. I am sorry that uh, our executive director, Richard Horner is, is not on this call because um, I forget around what time. And, and I, I've only been at the study center for years, as most of our listeners will know, but um, I've, I've known Richard for a long time. And, and he um, did a, a class that uh, focused on, on the body as sort of, um, exploring the the realm of um sort of unending possibilities in in modernity you know yeah. and then the body is a focus of, of reflection and and i know he has a couple of books on on tattoos and and marking the body on his shelves oh. as a part of that and um so now i'm gonna have to make sure that he that he picks up uh earthen vessels and maybe uh, may, he may have it may be already on his bookshelf and uh, i didn't realize it uh, that would be fantastic yeah. i mean there's such it's such an interesting subject because you know it's the nexus of um sort of the personal significance of one's own flesh yeah. and social trends and social like social realities and social norms. Uh, so I really, people in one sense loved the chapter because they'd not thought about it, I think, yeah. at the level that I had written about it. But they also hated it because I didn't come down conclusively on yeah. one side or the other for or against tattoos. Right. I really spent a lot of time exploring why did tattoos become the phenomenon that they became for the quote-unquote millennials? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and that, if you ask that question, I think a lot, comes to the fore about how what happened in american culture between 1960 and 2010 right and and there are just a couple of um just things that that come to mind as you say that for for one thing asking the question right so there's maybe a little segue into your second book right yeah um and and asking a question not necessarily because you know you can arrive at a definitive answer just but because asking the question itself um is is valuable It, it it opens up um, pathways of thought and reflection and leads to um, a kind of thoughtfulness uh, that maybe is i 'm not sure how to how best put to, uh, how to best put this but that is is content simply with the act of reflection yeah uh, and and even if it doesn 't lead to to a resolution but I think we most readers not, i mean I say most readers right but there is this um, desire to have the answer right there very often when i 'm giving a talk on technology. I, 
Q&A, somebody just wants to know how much screen time is enough yep. screen time or, or too much screen time, right? Just give me something I can go and, and um, you know, put, put right into practice. Um, and that very rarely is, is my aim. But um, at, yeah, asking that question, allowing that question then to generate insights about the wider culture, even if you never arrive at, a, at an answer, uh, yep. is such a valuable exercise. It is. Yeah. And it's something that we don't do as much. I mean, there is a time and a place for a concrete answer given quickly. Um, There are certain practical contexts uh, where you have to make a decision one way or the other and do so uh, urgently. Um, But, you know, that judgment, that practical judgment follows a sort of descriptive account of what's happening in a situation. And if you, contemplate the world right if you if you do a lot of descriptive work about where you're located and and the the significance of how you got there and Mm -hmm. uh what the texture of your circumstances are Mm -hmm. um new practical possibilities might emerge that you didn't see before and so i you know i think a lot of our task is helping people uh i i hate this term but re-narrate uh, their situations and their yeah. context so that they see that there are other possibilities that they may have uh, closed off previously right. possibilities that would be better for them. In fact, uh, right. if they took into account all the, all the facets of their circumstances and of the history that brought them there. Yeah. History is important in right. certain respects here. Right. So let me just ask then, what was the impetus for the second book? What, what, Substantively, I think about the two books as effectively my contribution to the literature on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay. Um, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm really, as features of the Christian life, those are, you know, the two pieces that I think are, uh, if you had to distill the Christian life into two components, that would be it. Um, Shocking that I just agree with the Apostle Paul here. Um, so that's the that's how I thought about it. Um, the motivation was, you know, there at the time, at the time, way back when, uh, way back in 2013. Well, it does feel like another world, honestly. It, it really does, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, there were a, a variety of accounts of doubt. Uh, that were floating around that were just really bad um, that were just not helpful for people. You know, the, 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 the 35 year old evangelicals who grew up in the church uh, who are now 35 to 45 really got invested in this idea that they'd been indoctrinated and they needed to doubt their mm. uh, upbringing mm. and that they were going to, sort of overturn everything. And that's still yeah. around, right? That hasn't right. gone away. There are podcasts that make this a uh, a thing. And there are now like people floating being consultants at church to help with yeah. this sort of process, right? Which is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. And, I, and I looked at all that and thought like, this isn't like nothing about that culture of doubt has any kinship with the Christian tradition, right? Which is a tradition that, uh, looks at yeah. faith and says faith is ordered towards understanding and like doubt it is when it happens a 
lamentable fact mm -hmm. that should generate mercy from those who are around, not censure, but mercy. Like it's mm -hmm. not, it's not the sort of disposition or attitude that's laudable. Um, what's laudable is questioning mm -hmm. and inquiring. And, and so it was an attempt to rescue inquiry as a mode of Christian living from those who were sulling the waters by yeah. um, talking about the values of doubt. I, I, I remember, I mean, that, that period. And now that you, you know, you sort of talk about that, um, that does, that does, uh, you know, recall sort of a, a vogue for, for doubt. It's almost a kind of pose one strikes in, in some cases. And, you know, the way Rob Bell asked questions was not in order towards anything like understanding. It was as a battering yeah. ram to you overturn Christian convictions on certain issues. Um, and, you know, it's very much a pose. It's, yeah. it's, it, it was a pose and a posture that people had uh, that is showing its fruit in a lot of contexts now, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Where a lot of those people are, uh, would now no longer even identify as, yeah. as Christian in any meaningful sense. Right. And I think, well, that's, 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 that's what happens if you take that stance on doubt and questioning. And, and how would you think about the difference? Uh, maybe from, is it the starting point? Is it the motive that distinguishes doubt and questioning? How did you articulate that? All of the above. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, so I, I just go with Aquinas on all pretty, basically yeah. anything in terms of yeah. ethics. Um, and he's got this fourfold typology, right? So you can an analyze any kind of act uh, according to four different criteria. You can look at the intention, what the person intends. You can look at the form of the act. Uh, you can look at the circumstances of the act. And then you could look at uh, the, the kind of form of the act, like the, the thing that you're actually doing abstracted from yeah. your intention, right? And I think that fourfold descriptor is just so helpful mm -hmm. because you can look at a question and say like, well, look, what's your intention for asking yeah. this question? Right. Now you can ask questions for the purposes of um, embarrassing your opponents. That's, that's, I, there are context circumstances right. where that's a very reasonable thing to do. Um, uh, if you're in an opponent where or, or in a context where you have an opponent and they need to be embarrassed, then, yeah. and a question is going to do that. That's what you yeah. do. Uh, Jesus does that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but so you can, you can look at questions and say like, what's your intention yeah. is the form. Is it a well-formed question? Mm -hmm. Does it have the right like grammar? You know, mm -hmm. does it, does it have the right terms inside of it? Um, my favorite question uh, is a legendary question that one of the Oxford exams, which if you succeed at this exam, you get a lifetime appointment to all souls or something. Mm. So it's a really prestigious exam. And the legend is that one year, one of the questions on the exam was, is this a question? <laughs> right. Which you can think about yeah. as right. a form of a question. That's just yeah. a delightfully formed yeah. question. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, you can think about questions in all these different ways yeah. And the, the well-formed, well-ordered question, when, when it comes to something that has to do with the faith, is a question that's or, like ordered towards understanding mm -hmm. an issue deeper or helping your interlocutor understand mm -hmm. that issue deeper. 
um, through clarifying or through contradicting, but, but the aim is understanding and the context, it's the right context and circumstances. Uh, you've got the right form, you've put the right words to it. And then, you know, your act is fine. And I think if you think about questioning that way, um, there's all sorts of room to ask questions, right? My aim was really to liberate people to inquire properly. Right. Right. You mentioned O'Donovan a moment ago. I think it was in, in the context of, um, talking about, um, sort of your sources for, for earthen vessels. Um, O'Donovan is, is one of those writers that I, I always feel I, I really need to make a point of reading more of. Um, but, but I confess I have not gotten around to it. Um, and shame. Yeah, I know, you. I know. Um, I, I'm not I sure what the you penance. Invo- yeah. I appreciate you inviting me onto this podcast to shame you. For- <laughs> <laughs> you, you assign me the penance and, and I'll, I'll do what I, what I, what I must. It's reading Reed O'Donovan. O'Donovan right? is right. the penance. Okay. So then where does one start? How about that? Um, I think that one should start, depending on one's level of mm-hmm. theological acumen, yeah. um, I really love starting at the shorter uh, applied ethics treatises. Mm-hmm. So he's got a couple. Uh, one is Begotten or Made, mm-hmm. which was written in 1984. So how many years ago is that? That's we're going on 30. Yeah. Or, no, 40. Sorry. 40. Right, right, right. Almost 40 yeah. years ago. Um, I promise you it has the best chapter, theological description of transgenderism mm. that exists mm-hmm. to this day. Um, it's, it still hasn't been outdone. It's, mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary piece of work. It's very dense, but it's only yeah. 86 pages. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen like Kevin Van Hooser, a uh, prominent theologian mm-hmm. uh, has listed five books that influenced him the most and begotten or made as one of them. Mm-hmm. I've seen yeah. that several times yeah. from several theologians, you know, he's got a little book church in crisis. Mm. Uh, it was published in the States uh, as uh, this is it's on uh, sexuality and specifically mm-hmm. homosexuality and, mm-hmm. and how the church should navigate that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a, it's very humorous because in the States it was published as, church in crisis while in the uk it was published as a conversation waiting to begin (laughs) and you could just hear two different cultures and worlds in those titles that's remarkable yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) perfect um so i would start there i mean they're they're a hot button issue but but you can get a, a feel for how o'donovan thinks and what sort of Mm -hmm. theological resources he brings to bear on various issues. Um, and then, you know, he's got his, his big books, right. uh, which everyone should work their way through at some point in their lives. Uh, Resurrection Moral Order uh, is, you know, a, an account of how creation and the resurrection relate to each other and what that has to do with mm-hmm. moral thinking uh, and b- living in a moral community. Uh, and then you get the two great works of political theology, mm-hmm. which I think have to be read after resurrection moral order desire of the nations and ways of judgment and mm-hmm. if you think like that's a triptych those are three yeah. books that belong together yeah. um and if you if you read all five of those you would think o'donovan and o'donovanianly i think <laughs> uh in a yeah. in a really valuable yeah. way yeah and that's the thing with o'donovan that i would say right like he's very for listeners at home oliver o'donovan is uh, a dense writer 
I find him a very clear writer, but he's very dense. He's not like doing extensive footnoting of his sources. Um, and what he's doing, I think, is building a kind of uh, framework in people's minds so that they can think uh, uh, after him. Yeah. And he does that really well. Where, yeah. you know, I kind of read someone like Stanley Harawas, who I love. I, I really enjoy reading Stanley Harawas. Yeah. He's a bit like Chesterton, mm-hmm. right? He's got these great quips. It's, right. it's, it's these glittering sentences that are just really entertaining. And there's, there's a lot of substance yeah. there. Don't get me wrong. Um, Oliver's work is not like that. You know, it's, he's building bricks in your mind uh, you know, building a wall or I don't know what the right metaphor is. Sure, he's, yeah. he's constructing something in your mind so that you, like once you get it, you can s- say things about new situations yeah. uh, out of this way of thinking. Uh, and it's, and it's, I think the right way of thinking, like it's, yeah. there's a lot to it. That's, that's really true and wonderful. So it's not, it's not, I, I mean, I think I understand this distinction and I, and I um, um, I think it's an important one, and I know exactly what you mean. That there's there's a writer who you know, sort of writer who sort of teaches you certain things that you sort of internalize, and now you, you know some things that you've learned from them. And there's another sort of writer that just shapes how you then go on to think about yeah. all sorts of other things, right? It, it he the patterns of his thought are stamped on your own thinking, as it were. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way to that, and that's the way to read O'Donnell. Yeah. You kind of have to immerse yourself in it yeah. and allow him to uh, allow him. Like if 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 you're patient with him mm-hmm. and you go with him and you allow him to get into your mind and and to to think along with him, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it it helps you see the world. I think more yeah. clearly. Right? He's really about the the kind of descriptive task. Yeah. Uh, describing the world and our situation in it in such a way that the gospel um, becomes clear regardless of where we look. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've met O'Donovan a couple times and we, we once did a dialogue um, for a small group of people together. And uh, this is the only time in my life I've ever had this thought, but someone said of C.S. Lewis, I think Walter Hooper said of C.S. Lewis that he was the most converted man that he'd ever met. Mm-hmm. And sitting in and hearing Oliver O'Donovan talk in this context and sort of looking at him and really just saying for the room what Oliver had said, but in a way that they might have understood it a little bit more because yeah. he's so dense. Uh, that was my only role. I had yeah. this thought, he's the most converted man I've ever met. Interesting. He, like the, the corners of his mind, it didn't matter what the question was about. That we got questions about all sorts of things. Yeah. He was never more than a step or two away from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And he was drawing those connections in really profound ways. And that's yeah. the thing with Oliver's work. You know, it's very Christocentric. It's very mm-hmm. uh, tied to the disclosure of Jesus Christ as the key for reality, for understanding all of reality. And uh, he's able to, I think, narrate that in a context of ethics and in the context of political theology. Um, but if you, if you see how he does that in a book like Resurrection Moral Order, you can then go and do right. likewise in lots of realms. Right. 
There, I, I'm, I'm going to attempt to formulate a question. It may not be very well formed here, but, but it's I, all right. I won't judge. It, yeah. Well, you can help me formulate it better and then give me a, um, your thoughts on it. Uh, what I'm trying to, I guess, get at is this idea of moral reasoning, um, which in some respects I think is sort of tends to be ap- absent um, in, in society at large um, and, and in church contexts often. And the, the idea of moral reflection or moral reasoning um, lingering over questions, doing the descriptive work. Um, if so, what's the question I want to ask? How how would you how would you characterize your own work in relationship to to more? I mean, do you think of yourself primarily now as a moral philosopher or a moral a theologian of moral philosophy? I'm not sure how you would put that. And how do you cultivate that in in students? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. I mean. Yeah. On on Oliver, so much of his work is trying to unpack what mo- what moral reasoning what mm-hmm. what constitutes it, right. right? And one of his distinctions is, you know, within practical reason, um, reasoning about situations. It's there's two dimensions. There's a deliberative task mm-hmm. where we sort of assess what we shall do, but there's also this retrospective task Mm -hmm. where we consider what was done and we reflect on, we look back and we learn from these situations. And that I think in terms of understanding moral reasoning is to me a really helpful Mm -hmm. distinction because we tend to think about moral reasoning in its prospective context, right? We tend to think about it as looking forward and thinking, what should I do in this situation? But so much of that question depends upon what, what has been done. Right to this point. Yeah. And in order to answer that question, we have to think retrospectively. We've got to be able to look at where we came from and how we arrived at this particular position. And uh, because that story is going to inform our responsibilities mm-hmm. for the future. Um, and that's kind of how I think about what I'm trying to do. So I, you know, I write some about politics Mm -hmm. and I've taken a turn and the, the work that I've done on politics, it's, I've, I've spent a lot more time reading history. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've had a sense for, I like, I've had a certain sort of historical story about the areas of politics that I write on, but uh, I'm reading a lot more of that history in part because I want to be able to, um, have a narrative about Mm -hmm. how we arrived at this juncture. Um, you know, when I think about the the other work that I do, because I, I write on a variety of issues, you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've got papers on bioethics right now that I'm working mm-hmm. on, uh, one on abortion, um, one on ectogestation, artificial mm-hmm. wombs, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that makes you the life of every party you go to. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, there, I, I'm, n- I should, I'm not like a true O'Donovanian because I'm more willing to make use of whatever resources are at hand to make the argument in the context that I'm in. So I'm, I'll do what I would think of as pure philosophical work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll also do theologically oriented work where I'm mm-hmm. trying to work out what the gospel has to do with this particular issue. Um, and uh, so I, I span disciplines in that way. And from yeah. my standpoint, like, I think, I hope that's valuable. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm just constitutionally unable to, to, to do otherwise, but from, I, like, I really think certain questions 
you have to have a sufficient amount of philosophical vocabulary anyways. Mm -hmm. And I am interested in laying bare how to think about those issues for philosophers so that they can make sort of more real decisions about what they are going to keep or let go of within their frameworks. Uh, And I think that like, showing the stakes of certain commitments yeah. that people have philosophically is to me really valuable yeah. in certain ways. It's my, it's my method of heightening the contradictions, right? Yeah. I want to use right. philosophy to, in one sense, pose a problem for philosophers right. who really disagree with me and to be able to say to them, well, you know, here are the costs of the way in which you see the world. Mm-hmm. Have you tried Jesus? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So maybe this, I hope this is not too abrupt, but I, but I know we wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about literature and the Christian life and the moral uh, life, right? So Yeah, it's not an abrupt it, change, right? right? This it, is a, this, it's the it's, same it's, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, literature can be a source of moral reasoning or, or moral reflection, right? Um, so tell me about your, your interest in literature. Um, I know that uh, Shakespeare is very important to you. At least I've yeah. gathered that. Um, yeah. And... Um, and yeah, I'd be especially interested in in the relationship between um, maybe this this idea of moral reasoning, how we, we grow in our capacity to be um, uh, effective or or thoughtful in the way that we reason morally, and, and the role literature can play in that. Yeah, so I mean, it's funny. I was teaching class today on Dante's Inferno, and uh, uh, we read Canto Five, which is Paola and Francesca. Yes. Uh, Wait, let me stop you to let you know that I'm in the middle of um, of leading a reading group through the Divine Comedy here at the Study Center. Are you really? Um, yeah, and no, we did the Inferno through the summer, so now we're we're working our way through Purgatory. Oh, so, good for you! So you're speaking to good. Right? What tra- what translation are you using? Uh, we're using Hollander. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm reading Esalen. Uh, I've used Esalen in the past when I taught it, and then yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I mean, so one of the one of the interesting things about Paolo and Francesca is uh, that they're reading together. Yes, right. For delight. Yes. Uh, uh, they say, and you know, of course, I make many jokes about this with college students. You know that this is the original Netflix and chill uh, <laughs> that goes on, which is really kind of true. Uh, and. You know, it goes badly for them. They're reading for delight, and all of a sudden, you know, the story of Lancelot turns them into uh, what they become in Inferno. And uh, which, which, for readers who, who haven't um, perhaps picked up the, the Inferno as they should have at this point in their lives, but um, so they they commit adultery with one another, and, and Paolo is um, French, uh, or excuse me, Francesca is Paolo's brother's wife, and yeah. then upon discovering the unfaithfulness, um, he kills them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an unhappy ending, right. and they're in hell, and they're blown hither and thither right. by the winds because they're two substanceless, uh, substanceless shades. Mm-hmm. And you know, Francesca is not repentant. It's right. not her fault uh, right. that this happened. It love seized her, and she couldn't do anything about it. Right. But this idea that they're reading for delight mm-hmm. uh, really struck me. Like it really grabbed me as I was yeah. reading it because there's there's something about the indulgence yeah. of that mm-hmm. that you know there's a kind of luxury mm-hmm. there that it connotes and uh that luxury works itself out for them in a in, a, in the reading and chill sort of mm-hmm. way yeah. um and i think that there's i mean i i kind of want to say like there's a 
critique of a certain way of reading that we might be tempted to engage in within that. I don't think Dante wants us to read Inferno for Delight. Mm-hmm. Right. I think he wants us to read The Paradise for Delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, it's the one that fewest the yeah. people enjoy. Um, right. We all love the Inferno, but I don't think we're really supposed to love the Inferno. Right. I think we're supposed to get through it and learn from it and right. be shaped by it and formed by it. So I'm really committed to that as a, as a principle for reading. Um, you can be too moralistic in your reading, right? So mm-hmm. I, now I need, need to take the other side of things and say, look, uh, for two years of my life, I think, uh, I read nothing but P.G. Wodehouse uh, 20 minutes a night before I went to bed. Yeah. And you know how great, and sometimes I still do this, right? Like I'm slowly working my way through Woodhouse on and off. Uh, but you know, if you've had a bad day, yeah, like it, it's delightful. It's delightful. Yeah. And yeah. Y- there's nothing that you need more at the end of your bad day <laughs> than reading about nothing. He's uh, on my nightstand. Right? He's currently yeah. on my nightstand. Yeah. Good. Right. Literally. So, yeah. You know, this is, it's, and, and the kind yeah. of, the kind of luxurious joy yeah. there's a, there's a kind of i i think a uh a value to that there's also a kind of critique of certain types of modern attitudes towards mm-hmm. what literature should be we can read for delight and that delight forms us morally mm-hmm. um but i think that we've got to be really careful about the ways in which we're reading and the content of what we're, mm-hmm. we're reading and recognize that the the narratives that we're imbibing through literature are causing us to deliberate about the world in ways that we would not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're forming a part of the uh, I don't know the reflective milieu, yeah. the atmosphere yeah. that we're coming out of. Um, this is why one one probably shouldn't read Dostoevsky too much, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's a limit on how much yeah. one should be in a part of the sort of brothers Karamazov milieu. Right. right. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah. I you know, ref- literature is for me, it's a, it's a core source for moral formation and for ethical reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, for the last two years, it's been Anthony Trollope. Mm-hmm. For yeah. Me, I've know. read your comments on him. Yeah. And Trollope mm-hmm. is, if you want really, astounding astounding insights into a person's motivations uh or their manner of reasoning Mm. about a situation no no one is more subtle in their descriptions of the human psyche i think than trollope he's such a moralist he's a he's a a moralist all the way and people don't like him because he's a really active narrator but you know lady anna or um I'm blanking on it. The first of the Pallister series, uh, Can You Forgive Her? I mean, they're like, Can You Forgive Her is an extraordinary story in which someone is in love with someone, but they don't know it. And someone else is not in love with someone and they do know it. And that like juxtaposition about mm-hmm. how, you, how you could be in love yeah. with someone and not know it. Yeah. Like to be able to capture that. Right. Yes, you got to have some finely trained powers of discernment. To yes, do. yeah. And Trollope does. He's so good. It, yeah, there are these works that, uh, I suppose, in in their descriptive power and their in the way they they, they frame their characters, their experiences, their reflections of the narrator, um, have the power of sort of illuminating your own experience. 
Yeah. Um, and, and you sort of discover yourself in them um, and have that moment of saying, that's, that's exactly where I'm at or that's exactly where I'm feeling. But it, having not articulated or having ha- have not had it presented in that way. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, I've not, again, I've not read Trollope, so I'll, maybe I'll pick him up after O'Donovan. Um, but um, I... Your wife will like you more if you read Trollope than Trollope. if you read O'Donovan. Um, my wife is a voracious reader. Maybe I should just put her on Trollope. And, uh, oh, you totally and, should. Yeah. Can You Forgive Her is exceptional. Can You Forgive Her is such a phenomenal novel. I I think we were slated to read Middlemarch together before the end of the year here. Oh, oh, that's also good. Yeah. I approve of Middlemarch. Okay. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Um, I I always, the the example of a book that that has a sort of powerful and positive moral uh, resonance for me um, is Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop. And I, I find the, the presentation of the, of the main character, Father Latour there, and, and just the life that he leads, it's not what I would think of as an exciting book. Yeah. Um, it, it just is a reflection uh, on the life of these two um, Catholic uh, ministers who um, are sent to the New Mexico territory um, in the, I think it's in the late, it's set in the late uh, 1800s. And it's a, a story of their, of their life and ministry in, in obscurity. Um, huh. And it's remarkably powerful. And it's an example. It's, um, I'm, re- I'm remembering, you know, this idea of, of the challenge of, of portraying the good, right? We have yeah. a, a decent time portraying what is evil, making it interesting. Um, but I, whenever I, I reread uh, Death Comes Through the Archbishop, there's a feeling of, of Cather having captured moral goodness huh. in, in, a, in a powerful way that, um, I'm not sure how to put it. Uh, I, I remember once um, listening to, maybe it was Thomas Hibbs talking about Tolkien uh, and reporting that his students would say that they felt uh, clean after reading Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and that there's, there's something, it's almost like a kind of moral palate cleanser. Yeah. Uh, but serves as a, as a positive example and, and um, empowers is not the right word, but, but encourages us to, to desire the good, to, to lead this kind of life, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's lovely. I mean, that's such a good mm-hmm. description. That's, and one of the first times, uh, Cather's an American, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to congratulate you on making me somewhat interested in reading an American <laughs> novel. Um, you know, I, I do really struggle with the 20th century period, the mm-hmm. 20th century, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you, you know, but like a lot of the people that, I'm probably supposed to like, I just don't like like Evelyn Waugh or um, you know, like Brideshead Revisited, just a really noxious book uh, (laughs) that leaves me feeling dirty at the end. And and many of those sorts of tortured Catholic characters, I just, I just don't go for Mm. um, because the, the kind of depiction of the faith is um, I, I get it. I, there's a place for it, but yeah. it's just not edifying in the way that I think. Have you read Chester The Power and the Glory? I have. It's been yeah. a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's one that I, you know, I feel maybe sort of comes out of a similar milieu. I mean, Green is different than, than Bob, but, um, um, but maybe a little bit more re- redemptive, I think. It, or one that I think has a little bit more to commend it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's you're not approving that's all you, you maybe uh maybe we'll have another conversation about that yeah um uh and so 
Shakespeare. Tell, talk to us oh. about Shakespeare and, and, and tell us why, why we should read Shakespeare. I mean, oh. I, you don't have to convince me of that, but... Um, oh, how dare you? Yeah, I mean, no. you can't even ask the question. No, no, no. I, I, I've taught it. It's fine. I, you're, not, you're not convincing me, but... but um, I mean, there's a listener out there that's remembering a kind of torturous experience of Shakespeare in high school or something. And um, I mean, Ulysses S. Grant, when he was an officer before yeah. he was a general or was a pres- uh, was um, president, entertained his men by dressing up as I think it was Desdemona from oh, Othello, yeah, uh, and performing a Shakespeare play yeah. uh, at a camp at which half the army was at, uh, at a theater that say, sat 800 people that was full every night wow. that it was shown. I've, I've never heard that anecdote. Yeah. Shakespeare was so much a part of American mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lincoln knew effectively two books inside and out, the King James yeah. Bible and the Shakespeare canon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that's not sales pitch enough, I don't yeah. know what could do it, yeah. but there's, there's, you know, I, there, there's a, there's a kind of greatness of intellect mm-hmm. and of soul yeah. that you want to be able to encounter mm-hmm. to shape your own thinking and your own affections, mm-hmm. right? You want to be able to see that, what, what the deepest thinkers have seen. Mm-hmm. And it's a short list Mm-hmm. of big thinkers the problem is that many of them wrote in ways that are not very much fun mm-hmm. or you know difficult to mm-hmm. to get into it's not yeah. easy reading plato uh few people are going to sit down and read the republic for fun but you know what you can do with two and a half hours you can watch through midsummer night's dream right, right? and it's two and a half hours of your life and it may not mean much to you the first time that you yeah. see it, but if you see it a dozen times, uh, that gives you a point of reference for the rest of Shakespeare's plays. And you start seeing more and more and more, and it just yeah. gets better and better and better, right? Like there is no end to the depths to which Shakespeare goes. Mm-hmm. Not all of his plays are extraordinary, but yeah. you know, even the bad ones are so yeah. good. that like they're worth spending a few hours with before you die. Um, So that kind that sense of greatness of soul, the ability Mm -hmm. to uh, imagine such diverse characters Mm -hmm. um, and to capture them, you know, aspects of the person that have so rarely, I think been captured in the, Mm -hmm. with the the depth that he did them. Mm -hmm. I it's, it's, it's just an ex- extraordinary yeah. moral universe, right? Yeah. And fully Christian. Like, yeah. I just kind of think in Shakespeare's hands, like you're never going to be at risk of coming to a conclusion that would be incommensurate with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's so steeped in Christian thought. I'll take that back. There's certain, there's certain moments where, that are really complicated where he's pushing on things where I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, a man of his time and has sure. certain racial sure. presuppositions that would be extremely objectionable. Right. Um, uh, although I, I will say I'll defend Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm an outlier in that respect. Um, but 
so there are problems there, but those are the sorts of like uh, accretions mm-hmm. that I don't think touch yeah. the way in which he sees the world. Yeah. There's an excerpt I wish I could call to mind now, an excerpt uh, that I was reading out of uh, Alan Jacobs' um, latest book where he sort of deals with this question about uh, whether or not um, some moral failures sort of taint a work irredeemably. Um, but the gist of it is that, you know, there are works that, that who, whose sort of moral brightness is such that you, you become of two minds in reading it. You know, one mind recognizes where, where there are places that, um, you know, need correction or, or um, need to be challenged, but, but you still hold on to something because it's, it's illuminated the moral life in an important way for you. Um, and yeah, that certainly sounds like that would certainly be the case. I would think with Shakespeare. Yeah. Leave it to Alan to have a better description of that than I would ever come up with. That's, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, and yeah. the thing is it's fun too. Yeah. Uh, it's really fun to get a group of friends together and do a read through in public yeah. on a stage of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Right. And to invite other friends to sit on a lawn and have a, you know, a glass of wine and a picnic and watch you make fools of yourselves. Mm-hmm. I've done this and it's a ton of fun. Um, and that's, and this, that's, a, yeah. Now, would you say this is better than watching Netflix? Oh, <laughs> now, I, I've set you up. I know. Everything is better than watching yeah. Netflix. Quit Netflix. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me to preach the gospel of quitting Netflix. My, my pleasure. I, I, maybe I should uh, link your your uh, your treatise on quitting Netflix <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I add the links to this. Yeah. Um, but there, I mean, there's something kind of um, uh, there's a serious point there, right? Because in in doing something that I think would have been um, more typical of the kind of entertainment that would have characterized. Um, Certainly, the era you were speaking of earlier, the mid nineteenth century, when when it was Shakespeare and the Bible was so so critical, um, and and contrast it with the experience of Netflix, not just in terms of the content, but just the the experience itself, right? The form yep. itself. Um, it, it the the latter um, the experience of reading Shakespeare together strikes me as um, what Albert Borgman calls a focal practice. Yeah, uh, it engages you. It enlivens you. Um, it doesn't suck the life out of you uh, in the way that sort of the endless sort of consumption of content um, that now characterizes how we sort of do entertainment uh, does. Preach, brother. I got yeah. nothing to add to that. That's, yeah, right, right, that's, right. You know, that's, that's exactly right. The, yeah. um, and, you know, I've, I've got friends who have taken up my mantra and who get together once a month to read a Shakespeare play and they yeah. just sit and read it all the way through and have a ton of fun doing it. Um, and you know, you can, you can, you can learn a lot in a three hour evening that way. Um, you can, you can hear a lot in a play that you had never heard before. Uh, and it is, it's constructive in a way that Netflix could never be. Right. Now, do you, um, I sometimes think that, that Shakespeare obviously is meant to be seen and, and you can, you certainly perform it. Um, but there's a value in reading it as well. I feel like there's, there's much that I would not, it would take, as you say, maybe 10 or 12 viewings uh, to catch what, what one is able to sort of take in if you're reading it. I'm a, I'm a Shakespeare pluralist. Yeah. Not a purist. Right. Right. I'll take my Shakespeare in almost any, anyway. Yeah. Um, 
except for some of the degraded forms that contemporary theater mm-hmm. uh, productions sometimes right. put him in. Sure. Uh, that's, that strikes me as offensive. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the modes of taking my Shakespeare, um, I've listened to audio versions, mm-hmm. you know, I've read, of course, I've seen live plays, I've watched movies. I like, there's always the, the, the great thing about Shakespeare. It's not, it's not a huge corpus. Right. And so you can get good familiarity with yeah. a large chunk of it fairly easily. Yeah. And the great thing about doing that is you can watch or you can hear all these different media and you can see the ways in which they do different things. Yes, right. And so you, you sort of get an applied media ecology. Yes, yeah. Understanding no, is, is what happens because you're encountering the same thing through these different right. medium, right. Uh, media. Uh, and yeah. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, right. and it and it each one sheds its own light mm-hmm. on the play. I mean, I have heard, I have watched Midsummer Night's Dream. I think, which is my favorite play, mm-hmm. I think I've probably seen it. I don't know twenty times at this point in my life, yeah. in various contexts, including a very delightful performance by some eighth graders, <laughs> uh, which was hysterical. Yeah. I laughed unbelievably hard in part because some of their uh, enunciations, some of their lines were mm-hmm. so terrible <laughs> that they were unintentionally amusing to me. Right. Right. But they also uh, said lines in ways that I had never mm-hmm. like, imagined they could be said yeah. and brought things out that I had never thought. Yeah. Before. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Like, you, you hear the eighth yeah. graders do it and it's like, oh, I'm learning something. I did not know that line could be said that way. Yeah. But the eighth grader managed to pull that off. Right. Right. That's fascinating. Um, It reminds me too of the act of memorizing, um, which does have this, this power to um, make you see things that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, And, and there's, there are a few things I think probably uh, outside of scripture that are are more worth memorizing than than some Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it it really is immersion. Yeah. is the value. There's a, um, an essay that Fred Sanders wrote at scriptoriumdaily.com many years ago called how to master the, uh, how to master the Bible or something. Uh, It was an analysis of James Gray's book, how to master the Bible for all it's worth. Mm. And what Gray says is basically like, look, if you want to master the Bible, you have to take it one book at a time. So master a short book. And by master, I mean, immerse yourself in it until you're sick of it and then read it for another month. Yeah, right. And if you master that book, then move on to the next one. So I did, I did this as an undergrad with Philippians. I spent mm-hmm. uh, an entire semester basically only reading Philippians, translating it in Greek, but also reading it in English, uh, I think twice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that if you spend four months of your life reading Philippians twice a day, you can see the world Philippiansly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you can really think yeah. Paul's thoughts after him. Yeah, right. And you, you're kind of sick of it at yeah. a lot of points. But then, you know, you get, you reach this point where you're, you're sick of it. You think you couldn't possibly take it. And then you're out 
and about throughout your day and someone says something and it's a fragment that reminds you of yes, yeah. one line in Philippians and, and, it, and it discloses something about your situation that yes, you never yeah. would have noticed before. Right. And it just becomes worth it. Right, right. It, the, the, the collecting of these fragments to think with within, right, internally, yeah. right, um, that uh, do just that, right? There's an echo of a line that all of a sudden opens up this whole new vista, yeah. Um, and, and it's one of those things I, I used to uh, torture my um, secondary literature students with the task of memorizing each uh, each quarter. Um, and and I I always felt that if you know, I, I can't maybe make the argument ahead of you're doing this memorization that, that you'll appreciate this. But if you've done it um, and I, I did get this sort of frequent report about how you know glad they were to have done this. And um, because it's one of those things you have to sort of experience uh, it's, yeah. it's hard to kind of communicate the value of it. But when you have one of those moments that you describe, right, where there, there's something that you have that has become a, kind of a part of your, your treasure house of memory that dwells within you yep. and then becomes a part of how you um, perceive the world, that's, that's immensely valuable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, it's so, and, it's, and it's fun. It's pleasurable, too. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It is. Yeah. So... I, I, I was tempted to kind of come back full circle to the question of embodiment. Um, remembering uh, Ivan Illich's wonderful uh, book um, in the vineyard of the text, where he talks about the different cultures of reading um, as a shift in the, in the 12th century. Uh, and and he's, he has a beautiful chapter on, um, maybe it's a part of a chapter on these very uh, in, incorporated practices of reading uh, where in medieval mon uh, monasteries that the reading happened in a sort of audible but not quite fully articulated mumbling sort of way right and you have this constant chewing on on the words uh, that becomes a metaphor um munchers you know monks were sometimes called munchers because this physical act of reading out loud mm -hmm. and it was a very much an embodied um practice and he cites for example the kind of rocking back and forth that attends the reading in in jewish or muslim practice and and that in this way, you're sort of inscribing the text mm. uh, on your body in a way. Um, and and that, that's a very different form of reading or a way of thinking about reading than how we tend to think about it, which is a, almost a kind of purely mental experience. Yeah. Um, la last um, question for you, Matt. Five, no, let's say top three Shakespeare plays. We already know um. one. Oh man! Uh, just on your final point, uh, yeah, I'd, 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 I just want to qualify and say, not inscribing the text onto your body, but into. Mm -hmm. We got to make sure right. that we, yes, yes, because because the inscribing the text onto your body is a tattoo. Tattoo, right? Which is yeah. the other aspect of it. <laughs> which is, you know, um, that's what we do with bodies these days. We turn them yes. into words rather than uh, get words into our bodies. There's oh, an man. essay there. Uh, yeah, you know, I, my, uh, John Dyer. I don't know if you John Dyer, you know John. Dyer. I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So John made that point many years ago. To That's me. fascinating. It's, yeah, it's not left me. The all right. So top three Shakespeare yeah. plays. Oh, this is hard. It's hard. I love them all differently. Yeah, I really do. I have to say, Midsummer's. Uh, it's. I don't know why some people think it's overrated. It's not overrated. It's delightful. <laughs> Obviously not. The play, the play within yeah. a play is one of the, like done appropriately, one yeah. of the funniest things I've ever yeah. seen in my life. Um, so I really love that. Uh, I think I would have to say 
measure for measure. Interesting. Um, which I, I saw a performance of it once in San Diego and it, it's, it's, it was the most like comedic drama. It's really hard play to quantify. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are moments inside of it that done right are also very funny, but it's, yeah. it's very moving to me. Um, so I really, I really love measure for measure. Um, uh, it's, it's so hard to choose. I got to go with Lear though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Lear is, yeah, it's, it's, what can you say about it? I mean, it's, it's, it's so big. Yeah. Thy life is a miracle is one of those lines. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That uh, stuck with me for a long time. And Wendell Baird makes great use of it in, um, in his book by that title. Yeah. 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 I mean, Lear is, it's, it's a profound work. Yeah. It, it's 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 a moment where Shakespeare is definitely looking into the center of things, mm-hmm. and there's no there's no bottom to Lear. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that, and um, and Matt, I'll wrap up our conversation with that. Thank you so much um, for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This was a lot of okay. fun. Excellent.